Well, thank you for the welcome and thank you for David for those kind words. How do we know that the Lord wants to humble us? Well, this year, after we lost 3-0, I've come back here not once but twice. I was back in September here for three weeks, and if that wasn't enough, I'm back here again for another few weeks. And uh, you all know Roy Thurley? Do you know Roy Thurley? If you don't, you should. Roy Thurley was one of the UK directors of CFI for quite a few years, and uh, I knew Roy for many, many years and guided a number of CFI groups in Israel with Roy. And Roy is an avid English cricket fan. And so I saw him when I got back and saw him in a function in London some weeks ago. And uh, I was just waiting for him to pounce. And he never pounced. He was waiting for the right opportunity. And then if, last week, of course, I went to his little village up there in North Wales, and I won't even try to pronounce it. Um, but anyhow. So I was expecting to drive into this little village and see a big sign, 3 nil. I was fully expecting it. <coughs> but it wasn't there. But as soon as I walked in the door, guess what the first words that came out of Roy's mouth were? Three nil. I said, okay, Roy. I know the Lord wants to humble me. So there you go. So congratulations. And if I do come back next year, guess who might be doing the spruiking? Let's start with a scripture on a serious note. Jeremiah 31. In the theme of keeping covenant. Verse 31, down to verse 36. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. These verses, of course, are very familiar to us. As you read through the book of Hebrews, they are alluded to twice. Whenever we take communion, when we say those words that Jesus pronounced, that this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Of course, those words that Yeshua pronounced in that Passover in Jerusalem are referenced here. He's referring to this scripture. But these verses continue on. They don't stop at the end of verse 34. There's a natural continuation into the next few verses. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the decrees of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those decrees depart from before me, says the Lord, 
which decrees? The ones he's just alluded to. The sun for a light by day, the moon and the stars for a light by night. If those decrees depart from before me, says the Lord, then, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. These are wonderful, wonderful scriptures from verse 31 all the way down to verse 36. In a sense, you have the gospel and God's plans and purposes for the nation of Israel encompassed within these verses. When I first became a follower of Jesus, I read this scripture not long afterwards, when I'm sure you would agree with me that when you come into the kingdom of God, you're very hungry, hungry for the word. I'm sure many of you have had that same experience. And I was hungry for the word. And I read through these scriptures and this portion just jumped out. And it's never gone back in again. It's always been there and it's been perhaps uh, the foundation of my entire Christian life. See, I grew up in the semi-outback of Australia. I was saying to David on the day, uh, today when we were driving in, he couldn't get hold of me once. I said, yeah, I went to do some ministry just down the road. How far away? I think it was about 800 miles, I said, nice, David, or 800 kilometres, one of the two. But anyhow, that's where I grew up, way out there. And I had no Christian background, and I wasn't from a Jewish background. Yet as a very, very young child, I received an interest in Israel. And that came because of family and Australian military connections in the land of Israel. Uh, Australian soldiers and New Zealand soldiers fought in that region during both world wars. There were British soldiers there as well, of course, but uh, you're a bit closer than we were. You know, we were way down there. What in Dickens' name are we doing up there in the Middle East during two world wars? So I had relatives who had fought there, relatives who had died there in that region. So as a young kid, I became interested in the land of Israel because of, the, of that natural military connection. And I used to get subscribed to an encyclopedia that came out every week from London, from Pernell's History of the Second World War, it was called, associated with the Imperial War Museum. And on one occasion I was reading, I must have been about 10 years of age, there was a whole section on Hitler's final solution to the Jewish problem. And there were vivid photographs of the Holocaust, and I've still got those photographs etched into my mind. And I remember on one occasion we went to the local town, our local town was 20 miles away, that's how local it was, and uh, I went into the news agency to get a cricket magazine, which I often did, but instead I saw a book called Treblinka. So being a 10-year-old boy out there in the West Australian bush, what do you do? You go and buy it. So that's what I did. That's where my money went to. So there was something going on in my life I wasn't aware of. At that same time, an Israeli family came to live in a farm in the same area. Now, to let you know how unusual that is, Western Australia is the same size as India. But in those days, our population was only just over a million, the majority of which lived in Perth. And so you might say there was half a million people spread out over an area the size of India. That's how remote the area is. So of all the places for an Israeli family to choose to come and live, it happened to be in Babakan, where I came from. So I went to school with the kids and became more familiar with Israel as a result. So I guess by about the age of 12, but for sure by the age of 15, embedded in my mind was a desire to go to live in Israel. 
an old school friend actually once told me that at the age of 15, that's what I had said to her. Now, I wasn't a follower of Jesus, and I wasn't Jewish. So who was doing all this? Obviously, a sovereign God. And at the age of 21, after going into university, and then pulling out of university before I finished, because I didn't like university, and uh, I wanted to go and visit the places that I was interested in, which was Britain, Europe, Middle East, and especially Israel. So at the age of 21, I packed up, left, and came over here. And uh, as most wild colonial boys do, with a few dollars in their pocket, when they hit London and hit Europe, they live at high on the you-know-what. And so that's what I did for a whole year. Did everything that a young fella could do. So I wanted to really experience life because I knew deep down that once I got to Israel, something was going to happen. Because before I left Australia, I knew that there had to be an answer to life. I couldn't get out of Australia quick enough, let me tell you. I eventually ran to the aeroplane, and that is actually not an exaggeration. Because I just couldn't find peace, couldn't find any shalom there. Even when we did win the ashes a time or two, it still only gave me temporary shalom. But I knew there must be something, and I knew that something would be found in Israel. So, I finally got to Israel, the aeroplane landed, and I felt shalom. I felt at home. I wrote, actually wrote that in my diary. I was not a follower of Jesus and was not Jewish, so something's going on. I went to a kibbutz in the very northern part of Israel. At that time, the PLO was lobbing lots of Katusha rockets over the border, so there were fewer volunteers than were needed. So, what do you think we do? I would do? I went up to the very same area where the Katusha rockets were coming over. And uh, went to a kibbutz called Mayan Baruch. And if you've been to Israel, you go right up to the very, very north, just below Mount Chamon, the Chula Valley, where all the water comes from, the Jordan River. Beautiful area. If you haven't been to Israel, you've probably got the thought in your mind, it's all desert. Why well, go to a place which is just desert? Okay? Uh, wrong. The northern part of Israel is very, very green and lush and beautiful. That's where I was, a great place to be. So while I was on the kibbutz, I lived two lifestyles side by side. I lived the life of a very typical volunteer on the kibbutz, a very hedonistic lifestyle. It was cheap. And for people in my situation then, it was just a good place to hang up the boots for a number of months. And that's what I did. Over a couple of years, I'd go there for, to Israel for a while, to the kibbutz, come back here, work on a farm, earn some money, and go back again. So I did that for a number of years. But I also lived another sort of life there. I kept on wanting to find out the reason why, since I was a kid, I had the interest in Israel. There was something so deep down here that compelled me to keep searching and looking. What was it about this nation that got hold of me as a kid and brought me to the land? Now, when I looked at the Israelis that I lived with, I could see they weren't perfect because they often used to argue. Argue a lot more than the Australians. I mean, if the Aussies argue with each other, then they have a punch-up. That was basically it. And I'm sure those guys over here in Yorkshire would do the same. But there, they would argue even more so, and they wouldn't get into a punch-up. And at the end of it, one of them would concede, or neither of them would concede, doesn't matter, they had enough of arguing. They'd slap each other on the back on the shoulder. Okay, more shit, no worries, Yuval. Bang, oh, they're friends again. And I'd sit there thinking, what's going on, what is this? What sort of a mentality is this? 
So you could tell there was something there that defied human logic, or for me at that time. And they accepted me who I was. I didn't have to prove anything to these people on the kibbutz. So long as I worked, and even if I drank a lot the night before and was blind, drunk, I'd still roll up for work and they were happy with that. It didn't matter if you got up plaster the night before or not. They just accepted you as you were. Yet where I came from, to be accepted, you actually had to do something. You had to score 100 or score the winning goal in a football match or drink a lot of beer. You had to sort of prove yourself to be accepted, but not there. There was an acceptance that just defied, I felt, human logic. And so at that stage, I was beginning to think, I like what I see. I want to become part of it. Now, what I didn't realize at the time, but I realize now, what I could see actually was a principle. And that principle, I believe, is covenant. You see, all those people were different. And they came from all these different countries, had different backgrounds. Yet when they came together, there was a glue that made them stick together. And that was covenant. Covenant that God had cut with Abram was still in standing. So I got to a point for myself personally that I wanted to become an Israeli. I wanted to become part of this group. I wanted to serve in the army, not because I was a, a, um, a toughie or a hero or anything like that, but that was the way to sort of become Israeli. So I th made an inquiry or two. How do I become an Israeli in order to go into the army? And so the answer came back from the kibbutzniks, no worries. Very simple, convert. You know, they weren't thinking about it from a religious perspective, they just knew that's the only way to do it. So I thought, I'll convert. And there was an English guy called Andy at the time of the kibbutz, now we're getting into 1980, end of 80, 81. And Andy was going through the same process. He was converting in order to become an Israeli. He really wanted to go into the army. He'd been in the British army before, and he wanted a, another army. Okay, so there you go. That's what Andy was doing it for. And I wasn't quite in the same boat. So anyhow, Andy used to spend a little bit of time with me. I spent some time with him. And I remember on one occasion, uh, he showed me the book he had to read, which is about that thick, and he had to memorize all this stuff. So I looked through it, and I thought, this is about religion. You know, and I wasn't interested in religion at all. In my travels around Europe, and here, and in Israel, I'd gone to every cathedral and church conceivable. And not one of those churches turned me on. In actual fact, they all turned me off. So I had an impression of religion. Been to Jerusalem, okay, and I'd seen the people at the Western Wall and running around fur hats in the middle of summer, and I thought, nah, not for me. So as a result of reading through this book and then having a chat to Andy, and he said, yeah, listen, I have to learn all that. I have to go before the rabbis. And if I pass, then he said, they chuck me in a bit of a trolley and they send me into the operating theatre. You have to have a little operation. And then you're accepted. So I thought, this is not for me. This whole procedure is not where I'm at. I'm not in it for anything religious. And so I pulled out, thankfully, before the whole process really got started. But it left me in a bit of a quandary, because I had a goal in mind. I thought, I want, I'm going to go for it. I want to become an Israeli. I want to be part of this society. And now it's like the mat was taken from under my feet. Where do I go now? What do I do now? And my life began to 
go downwards, spiral downwards. I'd, I'd lost a hope. That was my hope. I didn't want to go back to Australia. My hope was now to stay in Israel, but how do I do it? God, who's sovereign, knew exactly how, to, how I was going to do it. At that juncture, two girls came to the kibbutz, two new volunteers. One was an Aussie, and the other one was an American girl, who I found out the same day was a Christian. Why? Because she began to witness to me the same day she came, basically. And I remember this girl began to witness to me about Jesus, and I said to her, I'm not interested in your Jesus. I said, if there is a God, then he's the God of Israel and the Jewish people, and all you Christians are hypocrites. I could say that. I had justification. I'd been to the Vatican, and to St. Peter's, and to St. Paul's, and to St. Stephen's, and to St. this, that, whatever else. All the places in Jerusalem. There's nothing that I could see in any of that which would turn me on for this Jesus. Jesus, to me, was the face of Christianity. That was what I saw. The church, Christianity, that was Jesus. If there's a God, he's a God of Israel and not of you hypocrite Christians. And so she was quiet. She had no choice, but she obviously prayed. So just a little tiny tidbit here. Don't always be in the face so much of people. If they really don't want to accept it first up, then pray. And it's what happened with me. We now get to Easter of 1981, and by this stage, I actually got a bit interested in this American Christian girl. don't know how, but it, it happened. And so I went with her and some other volunteers to Jerusalem. And on that occasion, in that year, Passover and Easter fell on the same weekend. They don't always, they did initially, of course, and Constantine changed all that. Now they fell on the same weekend, so you can just imagine Jerusalem was absolutely chockers with people for both Passover and Easter. We did all the religious things. We went to the Western Wall. We went to the Via Dolorosa for Easter Friday procession. Nothing at all turned me on. Last throw of the dice was Easter Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday morning. We went to a place called the Garden Tomb for the dawn service. Anybody been to the Garden Tomb? Well, when you next go with David's tour or whoever else takes a tour, you've got to go to the Garden Tomb. Very special place. We went up there, we rocked up there for the dawn service very early in the morning. Now, I didn't want to be there. I wouldn't want it to be in bed. But anyhow, we were there. And on that occasion, we were taken right up to the very, very front, and back from this distance to that distance from the speaker. And the man on that occasion was an Anglican minister. So here's a guy who had a, a dog collar. Now for me, in those days, anybody with a dog collar was one of them, was a religious person. Now this particular man was the minister at a place called Christchurch inside the old city of Jerusalem, which happened to belong to an organization called CMJ, which had a ministry amongst Jewish people in Jerusalem for 150 years. Now I didn't know anything about that. But that man preached a message which turned my life upside down and inside out. The first thing he said was that Jesus was a Jew. Now, I must have heard that before, but it had never made any sense to me. But on that occasion, it did. Jesus was a Jew. Now, I've often thought later about why that impacted me so much then and there. Well, first of all, it was God's appointed time for me. So there is an appointed time, actually, I believe sometimes. 
But I think that what happened was that subconsciously, when I heard those words, something must have ticked over inside. If Jesus is a Jew, if he was alive here now, he'd be walking around as an Israeli. I happen to like Israelis. So, two plus two equals. And I guess that's part of what was going on where I was at at that time. But he also mentioned this Anglican minister that the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel would precede the return of Jesus to Jerusalem. That also impacted me heavily. Now, I could not run away from those words. As much as I tried, I could not run away. I came back to England shortly later. The girl went back to the kibbutz. I went to the farm I worked on down in Kent, Orpington, that was a pick-your-own farm. Same pub. I was back there every night. Same-looking beer, but it tasted like brown water now. Something had changed. And so I had to write to this girl in the kibbutz and say, can you please come and tell me what on earth happened to me? I didn't know. Something had changed, and I just couldn't put my finger on it. So she came back to the UK from Israel, broke off our relationship, and then informed me of the way of salvation, informed me about Jesus. And I just knew straight away, that's it. So I repented, accepted Jesus as my Lord and Messiah, and was wonderfully filled with the Spirit of God instantaneously. I physically recall the Spirit entering into my body, and I was born again. Wonderfully born again, had a complete transformation. Well, then later, of course, the whole process of sanctification kicks in where the old self has to sort of be um, changed more into the image of the Lord. But when I experienced the Lord coming into my life, I knew I was born again. A new life. But I knew my life wasn't set to be spent in the UK, nor in Australia. And a few months later, I was back in Israel again. And I went back to Israel and I began to work in a hospital for handicapped children, both Jewish kids and Arab kids. My first exposure now, in a sense, to Arab culture, to Arab kids. Most of the times, these kids would remain in the hospital when all the other Jewish kids went home for holidays and Chagim because their parents often wouldn't come to pick them up. So I spent a lot of my time taking these kids out and taking them home. So I began to sort of then be, um, in a sense, not identified, but I began to get a relationship with these Arab kids and wanting to know more about the Arab experience and the Arab culture. And so it was another part of the journey that the Lord was leading me through. I then went to work in another hospital after that. And this was a hospital, a psychiatric and geriatric hospital. And in that hospital, I found myself working in the psychiatric and geriatric ward with Holocaust survivors as well. Another part of the journey. And it was there that I met my wife, Lexi, who was a Dutch nurse, and in 1984, we were married. At the time we were married, we were living, I was living, and then later we both lived, in a Muslim Arab village called Silwan. If you've been to Jerusalem, you go there today, it's where Hezekiah's tunnel is. It's the city of David. It's, uh, it was called, it's called Silwan. But in those days, there were no archaeological uh, discoveries going on. And there was only a couple of non-Muslims in that village. Very different to what it is today. And there was one particular occasion when I was there. And we lived on Melchizedek Street. Heard of Melchizedek? 
That's the name of the street we lived on. Why? Because tradition was, that's where Melchizedek met Abram. Tradition. And we used to catch, my wife and I used to catch the bus every morning at the Western Wall. In those days, the bus used to go inside the old city, into Dungate, and stop there, and we'd catch the bus there to our work. And at the end of the road, end of Melchizedek Street, there's a place called St. Peter in Galakantu. Okay, it's the, um, the place where they believe that Jesus was taken before Caiaphas and before the, uh, the Jewish leaders. And of course, close to the Western Wall, every morning, we got on the bus, we see all the Orthodox people coming down to pray. So there was a particular occasion, I think it was about 1985, I was home one day, I began to put all these little things together, and I realised this was an interesting place to live. <laughs> because you got connections to all the greats of Israel, with Abraham, because Mount Moriah, close by of course, Abram, and then Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, then David, the Davidic covenant, and of course Jesus spent the last days of his life in the area as well. So four men. And so at that stage, something began to grow inside of me. Who were these four men? Abram, Moses, David, and Jesus. And it was at that point that I felt the Lord beginning to impress upon me in a more deeper way the principle of covenant. Because all of those four men were representatives of covenants. There's the Abrahamic covenant. There's the Mosaic Sinai covenant. There's the Davidic covenant. And there's the new covenant. And that scripture from Jeremiah 31, of course, was now becoming much more real to me, much more close to me. I then managed to pick up two books at that stage, one was called The Blood Covenant, which was written by a missionary, an American missionary in the 1800s. And when he came back to the United States, he then began to listen to the reports of other missionaries who were coming back from all over the world. And he was picking up a common theme. All these missionaries were coming in and they were talking about the traditional customs of their tribal group. And one culture after another, it doesn't matter where it was in the world, had one thing in common, and it was the blood covenant. There were different aspects of it, but nevertheless, it all had a common theme. So this man began to think, how is it that these indigenous groups in Europe, in the Middle East, in Africa, in Asia, Australia, the islands, all had this common component which he gave the name The Blood Covenant. So I found that a fascinating book to read because there's so much also that's in the scriptures about the Blood Covenant. I then came across another book written by an archaeologist and this really, really fascinated me because this man, Delbert Hillers was his name, was writing about all the archaeological discoveries that they had made in the Near East, the Middle East, from Turkey all the way down to Egypt, including the areas of Persia, Iran, Iraq, Israel, Syria, all that entire region, the ancient world, 
And these archaeological discoveries were over a large period of time, a couple of thousand years or more. Many different discoveries are made, and they're usually big cuneiform tablets like that with all the ancient languages. And so different people had deciphered these ancient languages. And this man, Delbert Hillers, was surveying all the information that was being gleaned from these archaeological discoveries. And he began to realize there's a common thread. There's something which all those ancient civilizations over that broad span of history had in common, and it was called the Suzerainty Treaty. The Suzerainty Treaty. The suzerain is another word for king. So they're just called the suzerainty treaties. So treaties between a suzerain or a king at one level and a vassal at the other level, a servant. And again, there are modifications, there are slight differences, but there was a common element. And it was fascinating to read these common elements. And basically it was like this. In antiquity, you would have a nation down here, a weaker nation, a servant or a vassal, would come to a great king, the suzerain. And this group here would ask to come under his protection. Occasionally it might be the other way around, and the great king conquered the little one and forced him into subjection. But there are other times when this one would come and ask to come under the protection of the great king. And the great king would say, okay, that's okay to do that, but there are several conditions. First of all, you need to accept my constitution. So here are my laws. Here are the laws of how my kingdom is governed. My constitution. Are you willing to accept my constitution? Are you willing to accept my laws? And if the vassal would say, yes, we are, <coughs> then the great king would say, very good, <coughs> excuse me, I'll take you under my protection. Then he would say, the great king, or his representative, he would say to the vassal, do you have any other allegiances? Now, this is foreign affairs here, foreign policy. Do you have any other allegiances? Are you allied to anyone else? And if the, the vassal would say, yes, I am, the great king would say, you have to break them off. You cannot serve two masters. Do you see a few commonalities coming in here? This is from the secular world. And so at that point, they'd break off the other agreements, unless, of course, the vassal was in treaty with somebody else who was also in treaty with the great king. But invariably, he'd have to cut them off, come under, and be like that. At that point, when there's an agreement made, a little bit of horse trading, perhaps, but generally speaking, at that point, then the next section of the treaty-making ceremony would take place, an animal would be brought forth, and the animal would be killed, and then the animal would be split in two, would be divided in two, 
two halves. So if you've got an animal that was once alive, is now dead, cut in two, split, what's on the ground in the middle? A lot of blood and everything else. A very visual impression would it not be. I mean, unless you're a butcher, most people would actually get a little bit queasy when they see that. And that was supposed to be the case. Because generally speaking, at that point, the two groups entering into this agreement would then walk up and down between the pieces. Their feet would stamp on the blood of the sacrifice. And they would say words similar to this. May it happen to me, as has happened to this animal, if I break this agreement, if I break this covenant. And even if those words were not spoken, the very act of doing it basically implies that they are placing themselves under an oath. And that basically meant a curse if they disobey, a blessing if they obey. Afterwards, the animal will be taken away, cleaned up a bit, cooked, and then brought back. And the two separate groups would then join together and have a common meal. Signifying, in a sense, that whereas once there were two, now there is one. Even though in this oneness of the two groups, they both have different roles to play. They may not be exactly equal in that sense because the vassal is the weaker party and is dependent upon the king to protect him. The king is a stronger group and he now has a responsibility to protect the weaker group. So the different roles to play, yet, nevertheless, their identity is now like that and their destiny is now linked. So whatever happens to the great king would have an influence upon the vassal. Whatever happens to the vassal would influence the great king. And you can read about a story of that nature in Joshua chapter 9 when the Israelites broke God's law and cut a covenant with the people of Gibeon. And thereafter, the Israelites had a covenant responsibility to protect the Gibeonites. And so when others came up to battle against the Gibeonites, Joshua and the Israelites had a covenant responsibility to come to the aid of their vassal, because the Gibeonites were a vassal, and they'd gone to Joshua, who they regarded as the great king. So now you have this situation where two entities have become virtually one. Their destiny and their identity is now very much linked. At that point, there could be an exchange of gifts so that each group would actually not forget the treaty they've entered into. And you see some wonderful examples of this from the writings of Livingston and Stanley when they went into Africa, when they had to go through tribal areas. And they had to cut covenant with a tribal leader the tribal leader would then give them a, a token and they would take that token with them and that would help them pass through the rest of the territory. The whole event would often then conclude with a, another swearing of an oath if it was 
not already done with the walking up and down between the pieces. And this was really, in many ways, the most important component of the entire procedure. The swearing of the oath. The oath will be sworn in the name of the god of the tribe or of the nation. The deity. And it was so solemn because those in those days, those tribes believed, those people believed that their god was watching them. So even if you were went to a corner one day and nobody was around, nobody looking, you thought, nobody's looking, I can do something, naughty here. They couldn't really do that because who's watching? Their deity, their God is always watching to make sure what? That they never broke the covenant. So that's how solemn and important the whole covenant-cutting ceremony or suzerainty treaty ceremony was in that period of time and how important the people considered this whole concept of the swearing of the oath in the name of their God. I just want to read to you a portion of Scripture. You can find it yourselves later when you get home. And everything I say tonight, I'm hoping and trusting that you will go home and check it out. You should do that on all occasions. Whenever anybody comes in and gives a message, it's always wise to take the Scriptures down and check it out yourself. Now, in Jeremiah, just a few chapters later in Jeremiah 34... We have a situation whereby there's a revival in Israel. And as a part of that revival, the people of Israel realized they had broken one of God's laws. So let's just read from verse 12. It's a long reading, but I want you to get the fuller context here. Therefore the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I may, in actual fact, what I... We'll get to in a minute when we go back to Jeremiah 31. Covenants are not made. Covenants are always cut. Okay, which in Jeremiah, I read you the English version. In the Hebrew version, it actually says, I will cut a covenant, a new covenant. So I'm going to put that, those words in where it says, I made a covenant in your English translations. I'm going to put in the Hebrew. Therefore, says the Lord, I cut a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, let every man set free his Hebrew brother, who has been sold to him, and when he has served you for six years, you shall let him go free. Right? That was the command that God gave to Israel, right? That they got to let the people go. God says, But your fathers did not obey me, nor incline their ear. Then you recently turned, okay, they repented, Israel repented. Then you recently turned and did what was right in my eyes. Great. Every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor. So there's been repentance. Israel realized they had done wrong. They had repented. They turned around and now they had said, Oi voy, we made a big boo-boo. We're now releasing our slaves. That's what's happened. Every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbors, and you cut a covenant before me in the house, which is called by my name. So what happened is the Israelites realized they had made a mistake, 
And now they're actually cutting a covenant before God. And they're saying, we're sorry, we're not going to do this again. Right? You got the context? Which is called by my name. Then you turned around. This is, this has happened, but listen what happens next. Then God says, you turned around the other way again, and you profaned my name. And every one of you brought back his male and female slaves, who had set at liberty, and so on and so forth. So, you see what's going on? They had repented. They then cut a covenant before God. They said, sorry God, we made a mistake. We are now pledging ourselves not to do this again. So when you cut covenant, in whose name are you swearing the oath? In whose name did those Israelites swear the oath? In God's name. So, radio, got you there? So, who's now the witness? God's now the witness. So if Israel turns around again, oi voy, the Israelites are in trouble because they promised that they would set their captives free. Verse 13, Therefore, says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty, liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, and I will deliver you to trouble among the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant. God calls it my covenant. The Israelites made a covenant with God. They made a promise, and God says it is my covenant. Why is it God's covenant? Because it's, there's been an oath sworn in his name. And I'll give the men who transgressed or broke my covenant who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and walked between the parts. So when those Israelites made that declaration before God, we're sorry, what do they do? They cut a calf in two and they walked between the pieces. And what does that mean? What does that mean in Israelite culture? When they walked between the pieces, they were in effect saying, may it happen to me as it's happened to this animal if I break this covenant. Who's a witness to that? God. And then God looks down and says, hey guys, you broke the covenant. So you're now going to receive the consequence, the curses for disobedience. That's a serious thing. It's a very very serious thing. The whole concept of covenant. Let's go back to 31, chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. In the English it says, make. In the Hebrew it says, cut. So, who's the re who instituted the new covenant? Right. And who was the mediator? Who was the one that was the sacrifice? Jesus. It says here, God says, I will cut. So there's going to be a sacrifice. But we do know the sacrifice was not cut down the middle. Because it says that not a bone of his body shall be broken. So there's a bit of a difference, but the principle is still the same. There will be a cutting, there will be a sacrifice in association with this new covenant. I will cut a new covenant
covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Who's it with? Who's it with? Which nation? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. But what about us? What about us? We're grafted in, but we're not mentioned. By God's grace, we who are far away have been grafted in. But it is with the nation of Israel, which, according to verse 36, while there's a sun and a moon and stars, then the seed of Israel shall also exist as a nation. So the new covenant is with the nation of Israel. Later, God revealed to Peter and then to Paul that Gentiles can come in. But the covenant is with the nation of Israel. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Oh, sorry, cut. This is the covenant that I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my Torah, it says in the Hebrew, my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now it's getting intimate. You see what's happening? God's now beginning to reveal that he's going to put his Torah inside us. Not outside, not with the phylacteries. He's going to put it in our minds and in our hearts. But folks, it gets more intimate even more than that. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Let's go back over this. Verse 34. No more shall a man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now we have to just look a little tiny bit at the Hebraic understanding of those words, to know. Now, if you have a Greek or Hellenistic mindset, to know implies you need to have lots of knowledge, lots of nous up there. But in Hebraic thinking, the concept to know basically talks about or infers relationship. It's about relationship. To know means to mitkarev, to come close to someone. How close? Well, Genesis 4.1. Adam knew Eve. And nine months later, there was a baby. Miriam, the mother of Jesus, said, How can I be pregnant as I do not know a man? No more has to be said. The relationship between husband and wife is so intimate that they know each other. The same idea is implied here. God shall know us, and we shall know him. An intimate relationship. Even though there is an eschatological component here, it says that they shall all know me, that is, Israel shall all know me through the new covenant, that hasn't happened yet. It's in process, but there's never been a time 
when you could say collectively the nation of Israel has known God through the new covenant. So there will be a time in the future, we don't know when, we don't know exactly how, but there's going to be a great, greater in gathering of the people of Israel into the new covenant. That's God's, that's God's timing. We're to be involved, but what's more important is the here and now. God has a desire to meet each and every one of us. The Jew first, yes, but also the non-Jew in an intimate relationship. That is what it's all about. To the Jew first and also to the non-Jew. You see, ever since Adam and Eve made that boo-boo in the Garden of Eden, God set about a plan of redemption. Because God's desire has always been to have this relationship with us. Always, ever since. Before Adam and Eve made the mistake, that's what he wanted, that's what he loved. Then it was broken, and he's always wanted the restoration. And he set about a plan of redemption. And it just so happens it came through a particular nation, the nation of Israel. And God entered into covenant with Abram, or Abraham, in which God gave numerous covenant promises. There were many promises that God gave to Abraham, or Abram initially. There was a promise of a people, a nation, the nation of Israel. There's a promise of a land for that people, is there not? There's a promise that all families on earth would be blessed through Abram or Abraham. And therefore that involves us. When the covenant was cut, the promises are in Genesis 12, the covenant is cut in Genesis 15, it says there that there was a sacrifice. And there were two pieces. And it says there that there was a smoking pot and a blazing torch that passed up and down between the pieces, an appearance of God. Abraham did not go up and down between the pieces. So that in itself signifies that those promises are now being sealed with an oath. The covenant was sealed with an oath in the name of God. So the Abrahamic covenant and all those promises were sealed with an oath in the name of God. Like that. When a letter has been sealed in the old days with a seal, a wax seal, could it be opened by anybody except the recipient? It was sealed. In antiquity, let's say, remember the story of Haman and Mordechai and the king of Persia and Esther? Remember when Esther finally got through and told the king of the plot to kill the Jews? What did Esther want? He wanted, she wanted the king to revoke the decree, right? What did the king of Persia say? He could not revoke the decree. It's already gone out. He could not cancel it. Even the king could not cancel the very decree that he had made. He had to send out another one to tell the Jews that they could actually defend themselves. And so when God then swore an oath, and it says many times in the scriptures, 
land that I'm taking you to, the land that God promised on oath. And so if God has swore an oath in his own name, can that covenant be broken? Can you open the seal and take just one of those promises out? I like that promise that all families on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. I like that because it's referring to me. The rest of it, it's about those Jews. Can you do that? According to the principles of covenant, can you do that? No. I do not believe you can. According to the established principles of covenant that are established here in the scriptures and in the rest of the ancient world, basically, as it was. So we have to understand, to the best of our ability, the principles of covenant. And that will help us to understand God's purposes for the nation of Israel, the nations of the world, you and I. Because if God can break his covenant with the nation of Israel just because they are disobedient, then what hope is there for you and for me? And I like to think that, you know, I'm not a bad sort of a bloke. I don't make that many mistakes, but I do boo-boo every now and again. Uh, there might be a few out there who actually don't boo-boo at all, so you're very, very exceptional. But what right do we have then to continue to be in a new covenant relationship with God if we make mistakes? If God can just flick Israel because they make mistakes as a nation, why doesn't he just flick us? Because of his covenant-keeping nature. You have to keep in mind the whole issue here is not about Israel. The whole issue is about God. That's what I encourage Christians who have an interest in Israel to take on board. Don't worship Israel. Don't worship the people of Israel. Do not worship Jewish believers in Jesus. Do not worship the land. You worship one, and that is God who was on the throne, because it is this God who has entered into covenant and given promises, and he will be faithful to those promises. And so we get back to Jeremiah 31. God's desire is that we would know him and he would know us. So his plan of redemption has gone through the nation of Israel. And there was a promise there that all nations on earth would be blessed through Abraham. And there came a time when one person, one of the seed of Abraham, came forth. Jesus Yeshua ben Yosef. And John says in chapter 1, verse 6, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. So now God is tabernacling amongst us. That's, he's getting closer, you see? He's getting closer and closer and closer. That's what he wants to do. He wants to tabernacle amongst us. He actually wants to tabernacle where? In us. But he can't do that yet because there's a big problem. It's the penalty that is upon us because we're in Adam. Because we're in Adam, the penalty of that disobedience is on us. The penalty of death. So before he can dwell or tabernacle amongst us, the penalty has to now be paid. So Jesus comes. He is confronted by Satan. 
after the baptism, he's confronted. Three times Satan tempts him. Three times Jesus rebukes him. The first person ever in history to have resisted the temptations of Satan. Jesus is now the legitimate ruler of the world. As an individual, you see it was given to Adam and Eve, they handballed it over to Satan. Jesus comes and he has defied Satan. He is now, in a sense, the legitimate ruler. He has the authority now. Satan has no authority over him because he couldn't force Jesus to succumb. But you see, Jesus didn't come for himself. He came for for us. So that's what he now sets out to do. But how can he do that legally? How can he legally take upon himself the penalty that's due to us? How can he legally take us to himself? There's only one legal channel, and that is through covenant. That is through covenant. That is the legal channel. You see, with covenant, as it was with Abraham, Moses, particularly you see that, God never forced those men to come to him, right? God said to Abraham, get out of your country and all these things will happen. Abraham, first of all, had to, had to leave his home country. Then those promises came to him. God didn't force him to, right? With Moses, when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, Moses could have gone the other way, right? But he turned aside towards the bush. So God brought those to himself. So also with us, what Jesus then set about doing, he went out proclaiming the kingdom of God. He went out telling everybody, this is what it means to be living under God's authority. This is what it's like to be living under God's authority. This is God's constitution. This is God's constitution. Do you want to live according to God's constitution? Are you willing?